Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Starting Small Music Podcast. I'm your host, Justin McCormick, and today we have a very special guest with us. We have hit songwriter Jim McCormick. You're going to hear Jim's story of growing up in New Orleans and what first got him into music. You'll also hear stories from early days in Nashville writing with Luke Bryan and the stories behind the writing hit songs such as You Don't Know Her Like I Do by Brantley Gilbert and Take a Little Ride by Jason Aldean. I had a great time talking to Jim. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode, and we'll see you at the end. Just keep a smile on your face and it'll be okay. Try not to be bitter. You gotta do it either way. Keep a smile on your face and it'll be okay. So when life throws a jab, you gotta duck out of the way. How you doing today, Jim? Good, Justin. Yourself? I'm doing great. So getting right into your story, you grew up in New Orleans. What was your childhood like? I had a good childhood. Um, I really did. I had a great mom and dad and uh, still have a great mom. And the, um, the neighborhood I grew up in was about a block from the Mississippi River. It was uh, Algiers. is a section of New Orleans across the Mississippi from New Orleans. And, um, you know, I went to Catholic grade school and Catholic high school. Um, you know, I think the only as I got as I got away and, and kind of looked back, I realized like not everybody eats red beans on Monday around the world, and not everybody had Dr. John and the Neville Brothers spliced in between Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd on the radio when they were kids. And you know, there's a lot of things that I think kind of seeped in um, naturally from growing up in in that city, and um, I'm very grateful for it. It's, it's a rich place to. To grow up it really is obviously you know there's been forget me man there's enormous talent that's come out of that city and i think it's it's testament to what a rich melting pot it is of, of music and styles and just you know there's so much great stuff to to, to fall in love with culturally in for sure now you mentioned a couple of bands there who are some of the bands you remember just hearing like at an early age age around the house that made you feel a connection to music early on Man, I mean, if I got to be honest about that, it's really kind of starts as a child with, uh, you know, those programs that PBS used to run, Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers and the Electric Company and Zoom. Um, that's probably and then, you know, Saturday morning cartoons. And I remember being like really drawn. I'd make like a cassette collection of every TV theme song that I heard in the 70s growing up. You know, I mean, I loved all that mash and. Uh, Love Boat and Fantasy Island and Welcome Back Cotter and the Jeffersons and Happy Days and all, you know, all those songs were really effective uh, in in touching something in me that made, you know, I didn't think I'd be a songwriter, but I remember being kind of glued to the TV with my cassette recorder, making those those recordings. And and then then he kind of fell into, you know, rock radio like every other kid, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I, I can remember I asked my mom for a uh, cassette player. Um, for some records, for some cassettes, you know, to, to play. And she must have just gone to the record store and said, you know, my eight-year-old boy is asking for, you know, some records. What do you got? She came home that Christmas. I got the Everly Brothers Greatest Hits and Queen, uh, the album Jazz. Okay. And I think the next cassette that I went and bought was Foreigner Head Games. Um, and it was that was it, man. I was off to the races. I loved, I loved music and I loved discovering it and going to the record store and, you know, at that point, I was just doing cassettes when vinyl finally became, when I got a turntable, I remember my first, my first vinyl was Journey Escape, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, so, and then I was all over the map, you know, it's just, 
Um, it wasn't much different than most, you know, suburban American childhoods, I would imagine, around the country. For sure. Now, uh, a lot of that music, did that influence you to kind of want to start the rock band that you uh, formed with your buddies early on? Yeah, I think so. I think um, at that point, um, I was that was 1983, and um, we were in high school. They were an all-instrumental blues band, and they were playing things like Jimmy Reed and J.J. Cale and Stevie Ray Vaughan and Jimi Hendrix and Clapton stuff, but it was all instrumental. Um, and I wasn't that into blues rock. I was I was more of a uh, Pink Floyd fan, and uh, I mean I was all over the map. I had friends with big brothers who had record collections that were you know that stretched along the entire wall of their bedroom, and we'd get down there on the floor and play everything from Jesus Christ Superstar to Allman Brothers to Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin galore. I mean Led Zeppelin was a big cornerstone of my childhood and adolescence listening habits. Yeah. Um, the rock band, you know, I mean, I think what's every 15-year-old boy want to do? You know, it's like, you know, we can jam out and we could, you know, drink a beer. And we can, you know, the girls are going to come to the show. And it was it was driven by all of those, you know, sort of, you know, hormone-driven things of a boy back then. Um, but I really enjoyed Once I started, it was the first time I ever collaborated and wrote lyrics with anybody. Mm -hmm. um, once I got into that part of it, I was kind of hooked. You know, the stagecraft being up on stage and stuff didn't really come naturally to me. I eventually kind of really loved it. Um, I didn't play an instrument at the time. So it was kind of learning how to stand on stage and what to do with your hands and how to hold a micro mic stand and a microphone. And, you know, at that, at that point I became a student of Paul Rogers and Jim Morrison trying to yeah. figure out like, well, what did they do? You know, like they didn't play an instrument either. So, exactly. um, you know, I, I was just groping in the dark, man. I was just trying to figure it all out, you know, life and music and, and, you know, how to be friends with my bandmates without killing each other. Right. Now, were you like a driving force for them to like want to start doing original material or were they already doing it at that time when you joined the band? They were. Yeah. Great question. They were. They were already writing instrumental originals. So for the first time, you know, I would listen to them. They gave me a collection of songs and I kind of picked out the ones that I could hear a melody over. And maybe, you know, there was a section that looked like a chorus that built like a chorus. And those were kind of our first stabs at writing songs, you know, and um, it was a lot of fun. It really was. Uh, Ed Conway was the main guitar player and, mu and, and creative musician in that band. And so he and I fell into writing songs directly with each other a lot. We collaborated as a band and we split everything up evenly. Ed would usually bring the musical idea and, um, you know, I think so. that band stayed together for three years, four years, and then we all went to college. Um, and they had gone to uh, to Tulane University and, you know, I was graduating. We I kind of called them up. I was like, you want to put the band back together? I mean, I didn't know what I wanted to do getting out of college. And, um, and so Ed and I then, you know, had had another tenure together of about seven, seven years. Um, writing songs at a much better level, I think, still not quite as accomplished as I wanted to get. But, um, you know, he had been my sole co-writer for a really, really long time in my life till I was probably, you know, late 20s. Wow. Um, I know I'm, I'm jumping ahead on you there, but yeah, all that stuff, I look back at, you know, um, all that was formative. I wouldn't trade, I wouldn't trade any of it. It was really a great sort of, you know, nurturing ground for me to grow in, um, and just kind of try some things out. You know, when we started the rock band after college, grunge was great. And, and, and Eddie Vedder, you know, was on top of the world. And I didn't know how we were going to cut through all of that. 
um, and and we didn't um, is the short of it. Um, yeah. We we were like you know, an A and R man's nightmare. You know, we were kind of like this this funk this you know rhythm section kind of born out of New Orleans R and B meters Neville Brothers Doctor John um, coupled with a guitarist a blues rock southern rock guitarist and and me you know I don't know what I was man I was trying to write poetry and sing it in some kind of a southern rock style and I was just like I said groping trying to find my way through it all sure. and they were very patient with me I owe them a great debt of gratitude for letting me develop all those years with them <laughs> now at your time at Georgetown uh, you go to a poetry workshop which makes you change your major from business to English how did that poetry workshop not only change your major but did it change your outlook on your writing process at all well I mean up until then I hadn't really like understood I think you know that writing writing was something you could really sink your teeth into as a, as a vocation um, if not a career that it was that you know the scope of what writing and literature was 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 tremendous it was as large as all of history and you just you know I, I fell in love with it is the short of it I just really fell in love with the craft of poetry and I fell in love with with reading contemporary American poetry um, and it gave me a better handle on how to go back and read later on in life you know the romantics and Elizabethan poetry and Shakespeare and those things it was it was it was really uh, it cracked my head open I mean my, my mind exploded uh, when I found it. And at that point, I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to take this into being a song lyricist. I didn't think I was going to do anything with music necessarily. But that, you know, when I, when I switched my major from business to English, it was just because of a pure, pure reaction to literature that I felt. And, you know, I mean, I think I knew instinctually, like, well, if I love something this much, um, maybe I could be pretty good at it. Maybe I can, should take a crack at it, you know. For sure. Now, after college, uh, you're uh, still doing music with your rock band, and you begin to take trips to Nashville for about four years. You said you would go up about every two weeks. Take me through that grunge period of just like going back and forth to town. So, well, the the the, the rock band in New Orleans was a great time, right? Put, you know, we put the band back together. It was four childhood friends running through the southeast in a F-150 custom van with all our gear, you know, no air condition, just, you know, barefoot, shorts on. 98, 99 degrees weather in the summertime. And uh, we would just kind of do that triangle from like Houston. I think we went as far north as Norfolk, Virginia, and down to Fort Myers, Florida, and all the, all the little college towns we could. So we opened for everybody. And I got, you know, there's a lot, a lot of gratitude I have for the older bands that from the New Orleans area that let us open for them so many times. Cowboy Mouth, Dash Rip Rock, the Sub Dudes, Continental Drifters, um, there's a lot, the radiators, a lot of folks kind of like let, gave us a spotlight before their shows in different towns. And that led us to have a foothold, a small one in those towns later. If we, if we had any kind of foothold, they kind of opened the doors for us. That was like, you know, just a great time of my life. It really was. It was a, it was a well-wasted youth is what I like to call it. Um, and then the band broke up, you know, two guys got married and life started to change. And, um, we had gotten tired of each other and you can only kind of live on 99 cent menus and one motel six for four guys and all that for so long. And, you know, there's a difference between being 21 and 27, 28. Right. And you kind of, and so we went our separate ways and I started to play solo and I put a, put a band together to back me and I really had lost the fire for it. I, you know, I just didn't have the spirit that I, I think, you know, the live thing had, I'd scratched that itch pretty good. And I, I knew I had, now I was just kind of riding on vapor 
in wanting to book shows and perform and stuff. But I still loved the part of it all that was the songwriting. And that never left me. I, was, I continued to write songs. I went and got a day job. I was a managing editor at a um, trade magazine for the coin-op amusement business, pool tables, vending machines, and things like that here in New Orleans. And, and, and then, you know, it just, like, it just kind of eroded me. And I, I realized after three years there that this was not what I was supposed to do with my life. You know, I was, I was utterly unhappy. And, um, and I had met a uh, songwriter in Nashville through a, a musician in New Orleans. And uh, his name was Chris Bergsness. And Chris had offered me to come to Nashville. And this is when I had my rock band and we were in full swing. And I was like, man, country, smuntry. I'm not coming to I'm not coming to Nashville. I don't even listen to country. I don't know what that is, you know. But I did listen to country, and I didn't really realize. I already was, like, deeply into the Texas scene of Towns and Guy, and I knew Steve Earle's work, and I knew I knew Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, and I knew, I knew like, some, like, you know, the stuff around country radio stuff. Um, and so I went up there, and, I mean, Justin, I just, like, I fell in love with it. Like, I fell in love with literature back in college, and, and I was like, holy cow, there's a job called songwriter. I'm getting that job. And, uh, and that was it. You know, I was like a horse going back to the stables and I knew, um, I knew in my heart, that this was something that I was called to do. And cause I felt so happy when I was, every time I was doing, and I'd go up there at that point. So I got fired from the editorship at the magazine. Cause I kept making all these trips to Nashville, <laughs> best favor anybody ever did me. And, um, and, and I, I would go up there and I would, you know, sleep on the couch at Chris's place and I would write songs three times, four times a day with, with some of the guys who are my best friends now, who I still write with. Um, and, you know, I would just do it and then I'd come back to New Orleans and I'd paint houses and hang sheet rock and just do whatever cash making business I could under the table and fill up my little Toyota and drive back up to Nashville. I mean, it was like, talk, talk about threadbare. You know, um, but I didn't see it like that. I saw it as like a kid looking into the candy store before they let me in. I knew I wanted to get in there. Um, it was one of the happiest times of my life. Honestly, man, it really was, you know. Sure. Um, and, and you know, it, it was everybody's every, everybody, I think, in Nashville's got that story uh, of, of, you know, it's just it's ridiculous. Right. On the outside. It looks so so threadbare so the odds are so incredible you know it's just like what are you doing and and you know of course the people around me who love me they were terrified for me you know i'd get you know my mom and my dad they just check in and be like are you sure you're doing the right thing you know kind of thing and i'm like if i could just get an at bat if i can just get a crack at it i think i'm gonna get in yeah just you know and i'm working with some great people um and that's it man just kind of like rolled like that you know um it took four years before I got offered a publishing deal of sleeping on the couch. <laughs> um, you know, I could have got a law degree, could have done a lot of things in those four years, but um, that was the thing. And I'm so glad I did it. You know, it's, I remember at some point Chris said to me, cause I was, you know, it's, it's a, it's a struggle, right? You're kind of like rolling along. And it's like, I don't know, you know, it's like, how long does it take? Can I do this? Is it going to happen? You know? And he's like, well, I'll put it this way. One day you're going to turn 40. Do you want to turn 40? having never tried being a hit songwriter or do you want to turn 40 being a hit songwriter? You right. know? And I was like, yeah, you're right. I, 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 like I have to pursue this until they tell me go home. Exactly. So you end up having your first number one. You don't know her like I do by Brantley Gilbert, which is so cool because I mean, 
it sounds like nothing else that he's put out uh, before that and since then i feel like one of his best songs take me through the day that you wrote it thank you um Man, it was, a, it was a funny day. He and I had met at Warner Chapel previously a few times in the hallway. We were both writers signed to that company. And um, we had a day together and we showed up. He was on a phone with a buddy and he was uh, having a conversation about a girl. And he was kind of defending the girl and his relationship with the girl to his buddy. And it wasn't a hostile call. It was it was it was like he was very lovingly kind of understanding where his friend was coming from. His friend was being protective of him, I, I would think. Um, and he was kind of, you know, just laying out the virtues of the relationship and of her and kind of like, you know, well, I didn't, re- I didn't really realize all that until, you know, 45 minutes in and he's still on the phone. And I was like, well, all right, you're saying some really wonderful things and I'm sitting here and I as well write some of them down because they're pretty good. And so I wrote, I would just make, you know, wrote notes, or wrote a list of things that he was saying, the real things that he was saying. And um, he got off the phone. I don't know how long it was exactly, but by that point, I had amassed a pretty good little few few lines. And um, he was like, you know, so I think, you know, he was, he was apologizing, just saying, I'm sorry, man, let's get another day. I know I wasted the morning here. And I was like, man, if you'll just, if you just look at what I wrote down, some of the things you were saying could make a great song. And uh, I turned the computer, I showed him, and he was like, give me the guitar. Let's do this. Yeah. And that's, that's how we wrote cool. it. And I, I, I remember, we, I think we wrote it pretty quick, you know. I don't think it took that long. And I think that's because it was it was pretty true. It was all real. And, yeah. um, you know, when you're riding on that kind of fire, it's like it, um, it can pour out of you pretty quick. You know, you're not looking, you're not searching for it. It's all kind of right there in you at the moment. And, um, you know. Uh, that was just a, a very lucky day for me to be in the room with Brantley Gilbert. For you. sure. And the, the track does a cool thing where it like uh, you think the song is over and then it, the piano comes back in and his vocal comes back in. Did you guys write it like that or is that something that came on post-production? I don't know. Dan Huff produced it and I don't know where that idea came from, but I loved it. Right. I, know. I just loved it. Yeah. The first time I heard it, I was blown away. Now, another one of my favorites that I'd love to hear the story to is It's All Coming Back to Me Now by Ronnie Millsap. So legendary to have a song with Ronnie. And it just mixes his sound with like a Billy Currington kind of vibe. Tell me, take me to, to, through the day you wrote that one. Man, thanks for bringing that one up. I love that song so much. And, um, you know, I wrote that with uh, the soul man, Jason Matthews, who's a great singer. And, um, you know, that... And John Mabe was with us as well. John and John's a great singer, so I don't know which of those guys, probably a combo of both of them, really touched on that melody. But that melody, um, you know, yeah, that melody is just beautiful. And I think, if I remember correctly, we wrote it. Winona was looking at the time. I think the the word was out that Winona was looking for a song, mm-hmm. and so we kind of wrote it with her in mind. You can imagine she can kind of do that same thing really well. Um, I remember, you know, just just cobbling together, uh, you know, a well-crafted song, a really well-built kind of soul R&B country song. For and, sure. um, you know, uh, I think I, I think Ronnie uh, announced that he was making a new album sometime after we wrote that song. I don't think um, we knew that Ronnie was making an album at the time that we wrote it. But um, it was a perfect fit. Carol Ann Mobley was the one at RCA who got the song to Ronnie for us. I don't know who pitched it to Carol, but um, 
Yeah, man. I remember the day going into RCA to hear the song. He had called us and said, y'all want to come hear the track? Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I was still pretty young. You know, I was really, I don't even know, what, like, you know, what do you wear? What do you wear when you go to that kind of thing? What, you know, it's like, um, and I just remember sitting there and just what you said earlier, you're like, oh my God, like that voice is singing some of the words that I had a hand in crafting kind of thing. It's just like, this this is a high like no other right here, you know. And I had I've had the same feeling over and over and over again when you hear some of these great voices singing words that, you know, that just, that at one point you you were just kind of putting them into a little guitar vocal, right? It's right. just like, um, it's really it, it's a beautiful beautiful feeling. It's a great feeling. Nothing like it. Now, Except this- writing the song itself. That's a better <laughs> writing the song itself is the best feeling. Oh, totally. Um, and then hearing it rendered is just like, wow. All right. Now, this is actually going back a little bit in the story, but um, Luke Bryan was actually one of, if not the first, but one of the first people that you were co-writing with when you moved to town. Any early uh, funny memories from the writing room with him and you guys oh, kind of cutting your chops a, together? A million. A million. Um, yeah, man. I mean, that was just like the two of us, you know, we didn't know much, man. Uh, but we... We were going to figure it out. We wrote together a lot. You know, I mean, multiple times every week. And we lived together for a little bit. And um, he was just all, he was always a great friend and always a hard worker and um, still is to this day, both those things. Um, yeah. I mean, and this will tell you, this is like a little bit of a New Orleans thing, too. You know, it's like I remember we went to lunch. We were with Brandon Kenny and we wrote. We wrote in the morning, we went to lunch. You know, we used to go to lunch when we write these songs in Nashville, right? No, nobody goes to lunch anymore. I wish we did more <laughs> of that. But we went to lunch. We came back. I picked up the guitar and I, and I sang the song we were writing. And I remember, like, after I sang the chorus or whatever, Luke just like, like you know, because I knew in New Orleans, everything is sung and played way back behind the beat. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, way like back behind Willie Nelson back behind the beat like it's way back there right it's just like and um i mean luke looked at me it was like what was that like give me that you know don't don't do that again <laughs> right because at that point at least um the the influences of hip-hop and pop had not really come into nashville as strongly and um i think you know at, at, that was kind of the moment where i decided to never sing my demos now you know Right. Now, another one that I'd love to touch on, too, is Take a Little Ride, Jason Aldean. Uh, I think that it's cool because you probably pulled in a lot of elements from uh, your rock past writing that song. And is there any lyrics that stand out that you remember just writing that day and you're thinking like, dang, like this is a this is a cool song? Oh, all of them, all of them. And, um, you know, I like to say that if you kind of if you substitute um, the Rocky Tops for Dixie Beer, and you substitute the Corn Rose for the Levee on the Mississippi River, and you substitute the Quick Stop for the Time Saver, you have my delinquent childhood in New Orleans, right? It's just like what we did. It was just, we were putting it in the setting that Rodney grew up in, in Texas, um, which is decidedly more country and appropriate for our market. But yeah. I mean, that was a great day. That was three really good friends coming together. Um, and Dylan Altman, I think, brought that riff. Dylan's a great guitar player as well as a great songwriter and singer. And he brought that riff, and it was like, yeah, man. I mentioned Zeppelin earlier, and it was like that's what it touched in me. It was like this. It was this. It was maybe a little more rock and roll, blues rock and roll than we ultimately landed the demo. But um, 
you know, that's what you want is the room to kind of light up on some, whether it's the title or a guitar riff or just the general idea. You want you want all the writers in the room to get excited about something. And we all got excited about that riff. And that was we knew we were going to build the song around that, you know, for sure. Now, take me through kind of what your creative process is today. I know that your stress is mainly on the lyric. Like when you're coming in to write, are you bringing in the title, maybe like the the hook, part of a chorus? What do you normally, what's your process normally like? Well, you nailed it. Yeah. I mean, as a lyricist, I kind of see it as my job is to come into the session with some ideas, some hooks. Um, and if not an idea of exactly how to write it, at least, you know, something that's kind of remarkable, right? In the way of the lyric, in the title, the hook. So I spent a lot of my time, you know, um, fishing for ideas. And, you know, my radar is always out listening to conversations and movies and TV shows. And, um, but, I, you know, I do a lot of purposeful time um, reading and, and, you know, just l- leisurely going through language yeah. in my way um, with my med out and looking for titles and looking for ideas for songs, you know. And then... So, you know, and, and I do that because I like, I, you know, I realize I tried to, I'd bring a guitar and I, I, you know, I'd sometimes be the singer early on in my time in, in, on Music Row. And I just realized like my left hook is words, you know, my, and, and there's guys here who can sing circles around me and, and God knows play guitar better than me. So, you know, I was like, you know, I need to just, and, and, and kind of just business wise, when I, when I narrowed it down to what my skill set, what I really had to offer. My publisher was much better at pairing me up with people who had complementary skill sets, right? I was never put in a room with another um, person who couldn't play guitar or sing. It was like, okay, so now we know this is what Jim does. Let's get him in collaboration with, you know, a great singer who's got a record deal and a producer or a musician who can really pair it up in the, in the, in the construction of the music of the song. Um, so that's kind of, you know, my process, you know, I think the process starts way before you get in the room. The process is kind of your your preparation, your mindset. You know, I like to get up early, do a little reading, take a long walk, get a breakfast, get the right cup of coffee. You know, it's like, you know, if you don't know somebody, you're kind of hanging out for a second, you know, like where are you from, whatever like that. But you really, you want to, you know, I treat it like an athletic event. You know, you want to, sure. like a performance, you know. I mean, the, the writing day is like a performance. You want to, you want to show up big for that day and bring the best you got, not just creatively, but psychologically and interpersonally with people and just, you know, make it a great day. Um, and, and the odds of it being a great song are that much better. Right. I think you hit it right on the spot with keeping the antenna up. Cause like, I feel like I'm the same way. Cause people like that aren't songwriters just, they speak in like song lyrics all the time without even knowing it, or a friend might shoot you a text. Like, and you're like, that, that's my hook right there. You know? Right. Right. Well, you know, always have that net out, man. Just always be looking. Like you're writing, you know, you're, you're a songwriter 24-7 is, is the truth of it. You know, it really, um, and if you love it, that's fine. That's, it's very fine. <laughs> now, you've already sp- spread a lot of uh, good advice, but uh, if you could give one like big piece of advice to aspiring uh, musicians, songwriters out there, what would be that one piece of ad- advice to them? Man, you know, I, I think, you know, it was given to me when I was a young, you know, I was trying to aspiring to be a, a poet and, and write poetry and stuff. And it was just, you know, it's like a writer writes, period. End of sentence. A writer writes. Like a writer doesn't do anything else that makes him a writer, you know? And yeah. so 
get after it. You know, it, it means write every day, write as much as you can. Don't, don't, you know, don't adhere to any kind of, you know, there's, there's no dress code and there's no background check and there's no, like, like the only thing that qualifies you as a writer is writing. And, you know, it's really that simple and that hard. Well, guys, there you have it. My conversation with Jim McCormick. Jim, thank you again so much for coming on the show. I had a great time talking with you. Everyone go follow him on Instagram at McCormick 613 And make sure to come back next week to hear my conversation with Darian Hoge, band leader for Chapel Heart. Check out Starting Small Music on YouTube to see all the video content from our interviews. And also, follow Starting Small Music on Instagram at Starting Small Music and let us know who you'd like to hear on the podcast next. <laughs>